This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, a podcast where we take a look at the interconnectedness of our medieval past, the stories it holds, and how these stories directly shape the world we live in today. I'm your host, Jonathan. I want to thank everyone who's subscribing, downloading, and listening to the show, but a special thanks to those of you who are sharing it on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're still seeing great growth, and so much of that is owed to you. Thank you. And don't forget to follow the link in the show notes to our new website, where you will get a regularly updated hub of episodes, blog posts, and links to various podcasting services, and links to our Patreon page. This is our 10th episode of our third season of the podcast, a season focusing predominantly on the chaos that erupted following the death of Canute the Great. However, we shift southward now to look at an event that was a long time coming, an event that still vibrates the cultural and political streams of our 21st century. Today's episode, episode 44, is entitled The Great Schism of 1054. I hope you enjoy Today we focus on 1054 and the most dramatic breakup letter in the history of the Western world except for one, the Declaration of Independence. But this is going to be a tricky story to tell, because by focusing on the year 1054 and the events going down between Rome and Constantinople, we have to frame it up properly. And framing it up properly involves barely talking about 1054. Trust me on this, it's going to work, I promise. And as I say, as in all things, context, my friends, context. And the reason why 1054 is pointed to the year uh, of the Great Schism, the official breakup between the Catholic West and the Orthodox East, is because it was a culmination of centuries of unresolved contests, unpopular theological and practical decisions in worship and practice, and honestly, just a bunch of really stubborn old men. Now, there are a myriad of causes of the Great Schism, but in this episode, I want to focus on what I personally deemed the Big Five, so to speak, but also lay out a few more ideas and historical timelines that without question will play into this whole story. First, I want to define very quickly what a schism is. Next, we need to see, at a lightning-fast pace, how the East-West structure was formed over the last 800 years or so. I promise, it'll be way less painful than you might be thinking. Next, this will lead into an idea referred to as papal supremacy. Quite a controversial idea, even to this day. Then we'll take a look at language as both barrier and bridge, and how that can erupt when a movement called iconography becomes a thorn in the church's side. Next is something called the filioque controversy which blends both the language piece and the fundamental differences in the evolution of both the Latin Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. Then, we break and have a quick snack and discuss how bread plays into the Great Schism. And then, at last, we will return with a grander context to the year 1054, when Pope Leo IX goes toe-to-toe with Patriarch Michael Serularius. So let's get right to it here. A schism is any social, political, or religious break within a structured organization of people. In the social arena, uh, you could say that you 
parted ways with so-and-so and you began something else with a different mission or endgame, right? In political institutions, you would rebel or conduct a revolution to overturn the existing paradigm in exchange for a new one to your liking. But for the religious, breaking away, one uses the term, most often, schism, to connote a moment in time when one organization or belief system simply cannot accommodate everyone within the community of believers any longer, and the system must splinter or else risk falling apart altogether. It is within the third usage of the term schism that we focus today's topic on. In 1054, the church suffered a series of seemingly minor events between some pretty hefty egos, and it was at that point when, the, when future historians and theologists would determine was the straw that broke the camel's back. And I don't want that to just be a saying that's overlooked here. Now, what does it mean, the straw that broke the camel's back? So the camel, as you know, is a beast of burden used for thousands of years. It's like a giant ant in terms of its ability to lift and carry loads far heavier than you would think it'd be able to. And its ability to endure in extreme heat gives it a formidable presence in the societies across places like Northern Africa, the Middle East, and other locations around the world. The camel is no joke, right? But how is its back broken by a simple piece of straw? Well, much like the church in 1054, Christianity had been the camel upon whose back centuries of political, social, and religious turmoil had piled on one issue after another, after another, after another. Things were resolved at times, but it seems many of them were only resolved on a superficial level, meaning the powers that be just threw a band-aid over it and, and moved on, hoping it would work itself out. It's a bit Faustian, though, if you ask me. We see this kind of problem solving in today's world in just about every direction you look. Faust always bet the devil a little bit more each time, didn't he? In fact, his bets hinged on a double-or-nothing kind of wager. The church suffered from a debilitating form of Faustian wagering insofar as they allowed issues to fester unresolved fully until they were no longer their own problems. But the problems of their societies, children and grandchildren and, and great-grandchildren and so on. Until tempers were so high in the middle 11th century that all it took was a couple high and mighty egos to thumb their noses up at each other, signaling the beginning of the end of the relationship. Thus, the straw that broke the camel's back, or a schism in Christendom. So what were these issues from a historical and political standpoint? This slow erosion of ideas and cultural community really began stacking up in the years after Jesus of Nazareth's crucifixion, in 33 CE. But I don't want to stray that far away from our narrative. It's fascinating history for sure, and I encourage others to look into how the early church splintered and fractured, and how the remaining disciples and church leaders disagreed with one another and formed factions. However, for our purposes, let's start in the wake of what's called the crisis of the third century. This was an incredibly tumultuous time, when the steppe peoples of the Asian highlands began pushing their way into the European highlands, mainly in modern-day Hungary, thus pushing native Slavic and Germanic peoples into Roman-held lands in Central and Western Europe. Yeah, it's like a big pushing forward. 
throw together some court intrigue and some ineffective emperors, and Rome was in crisis. Enter a military man named Diocletian. He took the purple robe as Roman emperor for two years, from 384 to 386. After establishing sweeping economic reforms that many historians point to as proto-feudalism, Diocletian embarked on a revolutionary new structure that he felt would make the gigantic and unwieldy empire much, much more manageable. In 386, Diocletian named his friend Maximian as Augustus alongside himself. Diocletian ruled the eastern half of the empire focused on economic reforms in modern-day Turkey, Bulgaria, Dalmatia, Egypt, and up the coast of the Holy Land, while also waging a devastating war against Christians with the intent of completely wiping out these desert cultists from history. His co-emperor, Maximian, was in charge of the western half, and he mainly focused on defending his crumbling domains in Europe from the likes of the so-called barbarians, such as the Goths and the Visigoths, the people that I just said were continuing to be pushed out, right, by the people coming in behind them from Asia. Though Rome was certainly far from stable, Diocletian and Maximian saw considerable progress during this time as co-emperors, so they decided to break the empire down even further by naming two more heads of state who were to act as, uh, act as Caesars, you know, but not hold the rank of Jedi Master. Uh, I mean, the rank of Augustus. Working below Diocletian and Maximian were Caesars Galerius and Constantius. So to get this straight here, Augustus Diocletian held the lands we now know as Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Israel, parts of the Arabian Peninsula, and Egypt, making his capital just south of a little port town called Byzantium, in a city named Nicomedia. Next, we have Caesar Galerius. He now ruled from that little port town of Byzantium in the east to what is now Greece, North Macedonia, the nations comprising the former Yugoslavia, and north into the Eastern Alps. And he made his capital city at a place called Sirmium along the Danube River in modern-day Hungary. Next, we have Augustus Maximian again, who ruled his capital city in Rome and held authority over all of Italy from the Alps south to Sicily, as well as northern Africa, and up into the Iberian Peninsula to the Pyrenees Mountains. And finally, we come to Caesar Constantius, who was given pretty much all of Gaul, or modern-day France and Belgium, as well as the entire British island, and his capital city was in Trier in France. And so we skip ahead a bit. This, uh, this tetrarchy, as it was called, began to slowly collapse. Shocker! <laughs> Diocletian fell ill and he did the unthinkable. He pulled a Cincinnatus and abdicated his title as Augustus. From there, civil war spread. Constantius was named sole ruler of the empire by his men, but so were the others. <laughs> and a stalemate occurred for a while, until Constantius' son took over in Britain. His name was Constantine, and Constantine rode through the empire, defeating the other claimants to the throne of Roman emperor. He reunited the empire once again. He had a dream about a cross, won a really big battle, declared Christianity as the empire's official state religion, 
and then moved the imperial capital city from Rome to that little port town at the gates between the Mediterranean and the Black Sea. This little town was called again Byzantium, but Constantine renamed it after himself, forever known as Constantinople. Now fast forward several decades into the 5th century, and as Constantinople's thriving, a Germanic leader named Odoacer invades the Italian peninsula and crushes Roman defenses, burning the Eternal City itself to the ground, leaving it in shambles. Rome would experience a few centuries more of relative economic and cultural stagnation. During this time, it was widely accepted that though Rome was still one of the five co-equal centers of Christian authority and learning, its political atmosphere sent it adrift compared to the prosperous eastern half of the empire, which included the other four centers. Rome's bishop, Papa to his people, which is where we get the word Pope, was somewhat powerless for a time. Though he held the people's eternal souls in his grasp, as for any political teeth, well, Europe was largely in disarray. Germanic tribes of every flavor saw the lack of Roman authority a boon to their prospects. Groups like the Vandals blew through Iberia and settled nearly unopposed in Rome's ancient nemesis's capital of Carthage, which is now modern-day Tunis in Tunisia. The Visigoths followed them into Iberia, but stopped there and created a handful of Christian kingdoms that mainly stayed to the north. The Franks set up in modern-day France, of course. The Saxons, Angles, and Jutes headed to Roman Britain, or what was Roman Britain, to become England one day. Other Saxons, Angles, and Jutes stayed put and would become the Dutch and Germans, and even intermarried on either side to create Flemish, Belgian, and Danish peoples. Slavs and Germans coalesced into groups that would eventually become the German and Polish groups. Slavs would also combine with the steppe peoples of the Huns and the Magyars to become Hungary one day. Enter Scandinavian Vikings, drawn by the allure of riches of Miklagard, or Constantinople, who conquered and then intermarried native Slavs to create the first whispers of modern-day Russia. In the centuries following Constantine's decisions, Europe was chaotic, to say the least. It experienced a mind-boggling flurry of activity rarely understood these days, though easily dismissed as the Dark Ages, a term I'm more and more coming to despise. It connotes a time of intellectual drudgery that I just don't fully believe existed. These were dynamic centuries, no doubt, but they did admittedly exist in the enormous shadows cast by the Eastern Roman Empire, and then the Islamic proliferation. But dark these times were not, necessarily. I mean, we may know little, comparatively speaking, and the church did much to stifle creativity and opposing thinking, but with the legends arising such as St. Patrick's deeds throughout Europe and into Ireland, Arthur Pendragon's supposed successes in coalescing a post-Roman Britain, and the establishment of Cordoba itself, these are telltale signs of a dynamic period of movement in Europe. But eventually we come to the King of Franks, Charles the Great, known to us as Charlemagne, who was crowned the first Holy Roman Emperor on Christmas Day in the year 800. By Emperor Constantine's reign, though, again in the 5th century, there were five centers of Christendom already well established, but with Rome being off on its lonesome, separated by almost 1,400 miles, or 
2,200 kilometers from Constantinople, it also found itself isolated both culturally and linguistically. Rome was Latin, of course, while Constantinople was unmistakably Greek, though they thought of themselves 100% as Romans. That's what they referred to themselves as. And with Rome being the only Latin-speaking center of Christendom, there was clear isolation from their Greek-speaking co-equals across the Mediterranean, the other four centers of Christian learning and authority, Constantinople, Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem. This, in and of itself, drove a massive wedge within the church. But after centuries of being the quote-unquote backwater of Christendom, Rome's bishop not only created a new empire, but he proved that a bishop could direct the political course of history. This monumental move by the Pope to crown a new emperor, this would be a power move that wouldn't soon be forgotten. And there was even a moment there, just a flicker of a spark of reunification within the first few years of this new Western empire, where all of the Pope's chess moves might have been either catapulted as the move of the millennium, or the thing that proved his idea of supremacy over the other Christian centers as fatal. See, Charlemagne offered his hand in marriage to the Empress Irene, but outside forces intervened and the whole plan fell through. Basically, the two empires would remain separate and the Bishop of Rome would have no equal within the Holy Roman Empire. This idea of papal supremacy was kind of a deal-breaker for both sides, and tensions around this topic only intensified as the Eastern Roman Empire slipped and declined, while the Holy Roman Empire in the West rose gradually in prominence. Though the idea that the Pope in Rome held more influence and power than the other bishops in, in, and patriarchs in the East was amplified by the creation of the Holy Roman Empire, that event wasn't the beginning of it all. In fact, one could say that the controversy of papal supremacy began straight from Jesus' own mouth. See, Rome felt they had a rock-hard claim here, an indisputable claim, actually, and they looked to the Bible itself. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus is speaking to, the, to his apostle Peter. Jesus tells him, quote, And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of Hades will not conquer it. End quote. Okay, so what's the rock? And, and Peter? Why, what makes Peter this rock that Jesus says he will build his church upon? The Bible was originally written in the Holy Land, right? Mm, sort of. Um, yes and no. But much of it was written by Jewish followers of Jesus of Nazareth. And the Holy Land was very much Hellenic in its overall culture and language, though of course there were minor cultures holding strong to their ways, like the Hebrew people, for instance, who still populated the area. But even they adopted certain Hellenic ways and language over the centuries. So the language used in writing the Bible was originally Greek. In Greek, the word for rock was P-E-T-R, and in English, we get words like petroglyph, meaning ancient markings preserved on a rock surface, and the word petrol, or a fuel source, oil, really, or gasoline that comes from rocks, so to speak, at least in the earth. Peter wasn't an accidental name here. 
This was very subtle marketing on the part of the authors of the Bible. And if Jesus was recorded as saying that Peter was the rock on which his church would be built, and Peter set up shop in Rome to spread the Christian doctrine, and Peter was martyred in Rome, well, that's why Rome stood as the quote-unquote one and only capital of all of Christendom. At least in the eyes of the Bishop of Rome, that is. But even that's just the beginning of this. Folks in Constantinople weren't having it, and the other churches seemed to look where the emperor was. And seems how the real Roman emperor had moved the imperial, empirical capital away from Rome to Constantinople, it went to show that he would have moved the ecclesiastical center there as well. So it's not that the patriarch of Constantinople was in some way superior to those in Antioch, Jerusalem, or Alexandria. But I mean, it was where the emperor was, so, you know. So this idea of papal supremacy was challenged right away after the establishment of the Holy Roman Empire in 800. In the 860s, Emperor Michael III of the Eastern Roman Empire decided he wanted a friendlier patriarch in Constantinople, one a bit more open to his plans for the empire. So he replaced the current patriarch and installed another one. But the old patriarch, all things considered, was on fairly good terms with the Pope back in Rome at the time. This obviously ran, ran perpendicular to the emperor's thoughts on things around the empire. So this deposing was a thorn in the Pope's side. Pope Nicholas I, who held the position from 858 to 867, turned around and deposed this new patriarch. The Pope wrote the following. Kings need popes but popes do not need kings. Oh, snap. Essentially, the pope has authority over emperors, is what he was saying. So with the emperor's blessing, the deposed patriarch decided to just not be deposed and turned around and excommunicated Pope Nicholas I. Now, this was hardly the first nor the last excommunication between the capital's clergy but it stands out as a point in which the statement was outright spoken to the East. Again, to quote Pope Nicholas I, quote, Kings need popes, but popes do not need kings. End quote. Those are serious words. With the creation of the Holy Roman Empire in 800, as well as the creation and unbelievably quick dispersal of Islam since the 630s, the East had far too much on its plate to, to make that statement a thing. So it just kind of fizzled. But it did mark a hard stop between acceptance between the two cities. Papal supremacy was hardly done with. But let's, for now, move on. So much like everything else in the world, problems start with the people, right? <laughs> people crave interaction. Yes, even the introverts among us. It's the whole reason we develop communication in the first place. From there, we develop a number of ways to communicate and interrelate with one another. Language, faith systems, art, etc. These are joined together to form culture, which is a set of norms, beliefs, and systems of communication that connect a group of people. Right. I'd like to propose a thought that language is the single biggest barrier to the interconnectedness of different groups of people throughout history, today even. 
allow me to make my point. Here in the States, we hear a lot of Spanish these days. Immigrants from what we here call south of the border and citizens from the United States, at least in my opinion, we actually have a lot in common. We share so much at our cores, but unfortunately, the language barrier often gets in the way. So what do those north of the border and south of the border have in common? Western culture to begin with, a Eurocentric viewpoint from which our perspectives stem from initially. For better or for worse, both Mexico and the United States are products of colonial expansion, enslavement of others, and oppression of native peoples already populating the land. Not saying what's good or bad, I'm simply stating facts here. But this Eurocentric viewpoint we share also gave rise to systems in which democratic thinking and individualism, in which the individual is sovereign within the confines of societal laws, has the freedom from certain oppressive factors of others and the liberty to steer their lives how they wish. That's something else we have in common. I'm not stating again, I'm not stating what should be or should not be, but simply what is. And what is common can be seen in the same entrepreneurial spirit demonstrated by people who are citizens of the United States and these same Mexican-born immigrants and new citizens. Had these two groups of people not shared that Eurocentric view of the individual, then the learning curve from one side of the Rio Grande to the other would make the already complicated nature of the issue far worse. But the thing is, we do share, you know, we do share those basic tenets. Here are a few other things that, Mex or, excuse me, that Americans and Mexicans share. Both have democratically elected, federalized constitutional republics. Okay, so government, check. Mexico is predominantly Catholic, but the United States, though numbers are constantly shifting, is still very much Christian-centered, with Catholic numbers still strong. Okay, so faith, for the most part, check. Each country, as alluded to earlier, were colonies who broke free from the chokeholds by distant rulers. Okay, historical pattern, check. Both groups of people grew, in, grew up in the same economic system as capitalism, though the amount of cronyism felt varied. Okay, economics, check. And finally, state-funded education systems were offered to all children and paid for through taxation. Okay, the education, the educating of our citizenry, check. I mean, the list can go on and on, but what is the one thing that causes a schism in the acceptance of Mexicans into American society? The barrier in the interconnectedness comes in the form of language. Language is, is the linchpin that pretty much congeals a culture together, or multiple cultures together. One language is certainly no better than the other, but if two differing peoples cannot even communicate, well, that's a problem. And so much can be lost in the translation, too. I had three years of Spanish back in high school, along with two courses in Latin and a course in ancient Greek in college, but I recall several differences between those and English right away. For instance, Spanish and Latin nouns have genders, which affects adjectives around them, whereas English doesn't. Okay, not exactly, but I don't want to get too far off the track there. In Spanish, adjectives come after the nouns. I know, crazy, right? Nouns in English can be possessive, whereas in Spanish they can't. 
And in English, I am 40 years old, but in Spanish, I have 40 years. See, the differences in language abound. I remember in my Greek class, we read ancient manuscripts where there were no lowercase letters, no spaces between words or sentences, and no punctuation whatsoever. Yeah, <laughs> language is a bridge, but it can also be a barrier. So that's what it was like. To jump back into our main topic of this episode, that's what it was like with correspondences between Rome and the Hellenic East. And when it came to those periodic ecumenical councils, they were mostly all agreed to be conducted in Greek, as Greek was the cultural and linguistic choice of the Eastern Roman Empire. But even then, the transmission of what was said and decreed at those meetings was put into question when the Roman clergy brought back the translations to those in the West. And here's the interesting thing about translations. In 787, for instance, the Second Council of Nicaea focused on the controversy over iconography within the church as a whole. Iconography was a very big deal in the 8th and 9th centuries as the church was coming to grips with the myriad of churches popping up around the Mediterranean and European worlds, you know, each with their own flavors on how to decorate their holy spaces. The Ecumenical Council at Nicaea agreed that images are the vehicles of worship, not the focus of worship. Therefore, icons were allowed throughout Christendom, a decision we still see today throughout the Christian world. I mean, look at all those breathtaking frescas, domes, paintings, and stained glass windows. The fact that they exist is solely because of this decision. This caused a massive ideological firestorm in the West, which might be curious to us today as European churches are unbelievably striking in their complexity and beauty and centers for iconography of every sort. Well, the West, for the most part, was okay with the decision itself. So why the fuss? As I said, the Western contingent of clergymen brought word of this decision back home and translated it. The word that was used in Greek for venerated was translated to adore in Latin. It was already firmly established within Christian philosophy that adoration of anything but God was strictly forbidden. It was outright heresy on a cosmic scale, actually. God was the center of it all. Hard stop. It was such a huge deal that 12 years before he was crowned the first Holy Roman Emperor, King Charles of the Franks, that is, again, Charlemagne, convened his own council of Western clergy with the sole intention of condemning 787's Council of Nicaea, excuse me, Second Council of Nicaea. This simple error in translation caused, caused a huge rift within the church itself. The Eastern church couldn't believe their ears when they heard word of this, and it wasn't soon forgotten either. Again, language can be a bridge and a barrier. And as a quick reminder, Rome spoke Latin while Constantinople, Antioch, Jerusalem, and Alexandria all spoke Greek, further isolating through language Rome in the eyes of the church as a whole. Now moving on, this next wedge between Latin and Hellenic-speaking groups, honestly, is just an issue of semantics. But it would have far-reaching 
reverberations. The first Council of Nicaea was held in the summer months of way back in 325 CE, and it stands as an early example of the barrier that language can erect between two or more groups of people. But this one also marks a break in the theology of Christianity as a whole. So we shouldn't be so quick to just dismiss it as a language issue. They certainly didn't dismiss it themselves. It came to be called the Filioque Controversy. And this controversy has one starting point, the Nicene Creed, which was established in 325 at the First Council of Nicaea. It goes a little bit like this, you know, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the giver of life, proceeds from the Father. All right? Remember that part at the end, proceeds from the Father, okay? Now, early church leaders and philosophers like Epiphanius and Athanasius in the 5th century they interpreted parts of the Gospel of John as saying that the Holy Spirit doesn't only come from, or proceed from, God. In John chapter 15, verse 26, Jesus is quoted as saying that the Holy Spirit, quote, from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, end quote. Establishing that the Holy Spirit does indeed proceed from God the Father. Good. We can all agree that, according to Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes from, comes from the Father, God, right? But in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 22, Jesus was said to have, quote, breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit, end quote. Thus, proceeding from Jesus through his own breath, one can receive the Holy Spirit. Others before and afterward, powerhouses in shaping Christian thought, such as Augustine of Hippo, Ambrose, and Tertullian, all spoke of the concept of the Holy Spirit proceeding from both God and Jesus. And it comes back to that, that verse I just read from John 20, 22. So Tertullian straight up connected the three as occupying the same divinity. A little bit far in those days. So as far as the Latin rite was concerned, the idea of adding filioque to the Nicene Creed was hardly a controversial matter. By the way, filioque simply means from the sun, okay, as an S-O-N, from the sun. An early compromise was seen in St. Augustine's idea that the phrase from the Father through the Son as a possible conduit in which the Holy Spirit could proceed from Jesus. But though it's still accepted today in Catholic theology, it wasn't a great compromise. And it doesn't help that the rest of St. Augustine's writings really pointed to what would become the central doctrine of Catholic divinity, the Trinity. For the next few hundred years, the Latin West and the Orthodox East would simply repeat the Nicene Creed differently. The Orthodox East would stick with the version I recited earlier, while the Latin West would have that one phrase, filioque, meaning from the sun, tucked in toward the end. A leading figure in the 6th to 7th centuries named Maximus the Confessor would defend the Latin Rite's usage of filioque as as he says, quote, they know in fact that the Father is the only cause of the Son and the Spirit, the one by begetting 
and the other by procession, but that they have manifested the procession through him and have thus shown the unity and identity of the essence. End quote. So, good. Latin clergy agree that the Holy Spirit and the Son both proceed from the Father. Okay, so what's the problem here? Well, it's that Rome took it one step further by saying that the Holy Spirit, again, proceeded from both God and the Son, instead of the East's version that the Holy Spirit proceeds from God and then proceeds through the Son. Okay, think of it like a conveyor belt. You've got God at the beginning, breathing life into the next step, which would be the Son. And in Christianity, that Son would be Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit would be breathed through Jesus, who can then breathe the Holy Spirit out to the rest of us. The Filioque Clause, as it came to be known by Charlemagne's time, was a Latin rite staple, repeated at the start of every Mass. And with each diplomatic team sent to the West, tensions arose when they were expected to repeat something they found to be heretical. But Rome stayed out of it. When you did Mass in Rome under the guidance of the Pope, the Filioque Clause, respectfully, was deleted. It was left out. However, the rest of Europe included the Filioque Clause. So this leads us to the year 867. Photius was Patriarch of Constantinople. Long story short, he condemned the Catholic Church in Rome as heretical and inciting a schism. Pope Nicholas I was excommunicated. That was the first time he was excommunicated, actually. And Rome was left without a bishop for a time. But Photius blamed it mainly on the Filioque Clause that had been allowed to fester for centuries. He deleted from the rolls the original from the Son, as well as the, by this time, revered St. Augustine's through the Son. So he just got rid of them all there would be no compromise on this issue, according to Patriarch Photius. It was a line drawn in the sand. In fact, Photius played his own game of semantics when he declared the Nicene Creed should be recited with from the Father alone. That's the words he wanted in there. He wanted to change the Nicene Creed himself to read, quote, from the Father alone, end quote. But what this Photian controversy, as it came to be called, really struck at was the crooks of papal supremacy. By extinguishing a major decision by each succeeding pope for centuries to include the Filioque Clause into the Nicene Creed in the West, that put to rest the question as to whether the Bishop of Rome was indeed the supreme leader of Christendom. Okay, so, <laughs> shots fired by Photius. Now, fast forward to Pope Sergius IV in 1009, who sent a document with Filioque written on it to Constantinople. The patriarch at the time, ironically named Sergius II, <laughs> ordered that the Pope have his name scrubbed from the list of prayers and excommunicated. This is proof that the Filioque controversy simply didn't cool off or quiet down in the preceding centuries. It remained a hot-button issue that neither side was willing to budge on since Photius's time. In a half-hearted retaliation in the year 1014, the German king, Henry II, visited Rome after pushing for Pope Benedict VIII 
to be renamed Pope after he, after he was ousted, called in a favor he did to his man in the cloth. Oddly, though, it was accepted and recited throughout the Western Church again, the Filioque Clause again had been left out of Mass in Rome itself. Pope Benedict VIII returned the favor to King Henry II by crowning Henry II Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. But that favor of Henry's was that the Mass, in honor of his ascendancy to the title of Emperor, include Filioque in the recitation of the Creed. He was in that moment on February 14th, 1014, that two things happened that would have long-lasting impacts. One, every Catholic Mass in all of Catholic Christendom would include the Filioque Clause through to the present day. Two, irreparable damage was done to the relationship between Rome and the East. Again, shots fired. Okay, so we have one more issue to, to establish before we return to 1054, and I promise it'll be quick. It has something to do with bread. <laughs> Can't believe I actually said those words. Okay, so it also has to do with the Eucharist, or what many throughout Protestantism just call communion. This is a Christendom-wide ritual meant to celebrate and honor the Last Supper, the meal made famous in Leonardo da Vinci's famous painting of the same name. This was Jesus' last meal with all of his disciples before he entered Jerusalem and gave him himself up to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. This is the point in which he laid out his ultimate plan, much to his followers' dismay, as he declared himself essentially a <laughs> dead man walking at that point. Jesus is reported as saying something like, uh, this is my body which is broken for you, da 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 as he holds up a loaf of bread and breaks it apart for each man to consume a piece, and then says something like, this is my blood, and on and on, right? while imploring everyone to take a sip of their wine. What does this mean? And why is it so cherished by Christians? Well, it's metaphorical, of course. But more importantly, it's a way for future Christians to partake in what's called communion with a long time, or a time long past and long remembered a time that is central to the faith. The Latin Christians used unleavened bread, or bread without yeast or some leavening agent. Crackers, really. They, they used crackers. They still do today. The Eastern Christians leavened their bread for communion. And bread is a big, big deal in the Bible. I mean, the Old Testament is like an infomercial about bread. It's mentioned so much. God apparently loves himself some bread. And according to custom, during Jesus' time, there were certain times of the year when one can make leavened bread and unleavened bread. The Synoptic Gospels to the Latin Rites point implies the Last Supper took place during Passover holiday, a time when unleavened bread was allowed to be made and consumed. However, to the Eastern Rites point, according to the Gospel of John, the Last Supper took place just before Passover making it a time when leavened bread was made and consumed. So why are we splitting hairs here? What is the big deal as to what kind of bread was used in the Eucharist or communion? Well, to us, 2,000 years later, time may have diluted it to the point that we don't much care, as long as the metaphor holds true and the experience is still revered. However, 
Christianity was a mere few hundred years old when this controversy first arose. Now, hear me on this perspective. We're talking about today versus 1791, the year the United States Constitution was ratified and the United States was formally created into what it is today. Aren't we still debating about many of the topics in that document still? So yeah, I get it. Now here's a bit of semantics to add to the controversy too. The Greek word azima is used throughout the Old Testament to mean unleavened bread. Asthma, unleavened. And the Greek word arthos was used to mean leavened bread. Arthos, leavened. All Gospels in the Bible use the word arthos when describing the Last Supper. The Latin rite fires back, and accurately, mind you, that the Old Testament has a handful of places out of the many, many times that bread is mentioned where arthos is used interchangeably with azima. So how can the East be so bold in their claims about leavened bread? And to add to that, Later in the first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 8, St. Paul is recorded to have written, quote, Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice or weakness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, end quote. Now, on the surface, the Latin, the, excuse me, the Latin rite crowd would scream about this being proof positive that the disciples of Christ wished communion to be held with unleavened bread, as leaven was equated to malice and weakness. But the Eastern Christians rolled their eyes and cast that argument aside, telling those backwater, hillbilly Westerners to learn what a metaphor was for once. You can now see how that, you know, jokes aside, the differences in the church can't just come down to crackers or bread. That's too simplistic. That's too dismissive. When discussing a person's faith, nothing is too simple to consider. There's nothing people hold more dear than their thoughts on faith or lack thereof. Hence my wanting to flesh this episode out to the best of my ability and give Christianity the fair shake it deserves when discussing a moment widely considered to be, as famed historian Edward Gibbon once said about the Great Schism of 1054, a quote-unquote thunderbolt, that became the, quote-unquote, <laughs> consummation of the schism. So, leavened or unleavened bread? Can you figure out which is closer to the fundamental approach to the Eucharist, to communion with Christ? The answer is no. No, you can't. I can't. I mean, the greatest of Christian theologians in Catholicism, Protestantism, and Eastern Orthodox a line of thinking stretching back the better part of 1,700 years from now couldn't even come to a consensus. So, leavened or unleavened bread. So this leads us back to the year 1054. Yay! The strict reformer and effective leader of the Catholic Church, Pope Leo IX, had been pope for five years, made waves in his reforms across Europe, garnered much respect, navigated those pesky Normans to his south, rode into battle against them, was taken prisoner by them, treated like royalty as their POW, and then recently released when he acknowledged a formal Norman political and military presence in southern Italy. Okay, all up to speed. It's now for Pope Leo IX that was back to work. 
and there was no time to waste. Along with a personally penned letter, Leo sent a few high-ranking clergymen to Constantinople to meet with Emperor Michael III. This was in response to Norman activity in the South, the stuff that the Pope condoned, that is. <laughs> in 1053, the year of the Battle of Civitate, after Leo had been taken captive, Normans shut down all Eastern Orthodox churches in Southern Italy. In response, Patriarch Michael Serularius, back in Constantinople, ordered the forced closure of all Catholic churches in Constantinople. Clearly, something had to give. Well, that would include dialogue and maturity, things both Pope Leo IX and Patriarch Michael Serularius were apparently in desperately short supply of. The papal legate sent to Constantinople had express orders to remove the patriarch's title and the emperor to declare papal supremacy throughout Christendom. Yeah. So Leo basically saw Michael Serialarius's gamble and raised him an entire church. Okay, so that wasn't the main purpose of the team heading to talk to the emperor. Just a couple things they couldn't they they could negotiate with, you know. The main purpose was to continue the secret dialogue between the pope and the emperor in Constantinople to once again join forces and take care of those Normans once and for all. The rest of it were just bargaining chips the team could toss in when negotiations started. But Leo did himself no favors when he chose the leader of the delegation, Cardinal Humbert. A hothead if there ever was one. Cardinal Humbert didn't have a single diplomatic bone in his body, and the following events put that fact on full display. And he was adamantly against the Eastern Church's refusal to see the Latin Rite's points on pretty much everything discussed on today's show. When the team arrived in Constantinople, it was customary to visit the Patriarch at the Hagia Sophia and then head down the street to the Emperor's palace. Humbert knew this. Everyone knew this. But Humbert bypassed the Patriarch because, unbeknownst to the Patriarch, Humbert knew that his communications from Leo specifically deposed Michael Serularius from the position as Patriarch. In Humbert's shrewd mind, there was no Patriarch with which to visit. He was received warmly by Emperor Michael III, but was publicly condemned and reprimanded by Patriarch Michael Serularius. However, after a spell, Humbert and his team were close to closing a deal with the emperor when word came of Pope Leo IX's untimely death. And with Emperor Michael III's, we'll say, tenuous grasp on power, it seemed that everything fell through. With no regard for decorum, Cardinal Humbert waited until Mass began in the Hagia Sophia. It's said that he waited until it was silent as the proceedings began, he slammed the high, heavy doors open to the church, marched loudly up the center, central aisle in full view of all assembled, the sound of his boots hitting hard on the smooth, polished floors, and he approached Patriarch Michael Serularius at the altar. It was then, in front of the high-ranking Eastern Orthodox clergy and the Roman Emperor himself, that Cardinal Humbert silently slapped Face up on the altar, a papal bull, a document, excommunicating the patriarch. Humbert stormed out without a word, out of the Hagia Sophia, 
to the stunned silence of those in attendance. He and his team promptly headed back home to Rome. But it begs the question, were Humbert's actions in Constantinople even valid since they were carried out after the death of Pope Leo IX? The jury's still out on that one, to (laughs) to be quite honest. But the moment that papal bull hit the altar, all of Christianity was forever changed, especially when it was received with the new pope being excommunicated by Patriarch Michael Serularius in return. A tit for tat, if you will. The Great Schism of 1054, as we know it today, was no single event or single issue. It was a storm brewed over centuries of cultural and linguistic disagreements and translative errors, culminating in the bruised egos of two or three hot-headed old men who were gravely enthusiastic about their ways of worshiping and practicing their beliefs. But curiously, it was hardly noticed at the time. It was an unfortunate story, no doubt, something people probably considered just another drop in the bucket of disunion between East and West. But it certainly wasn't any kind of schism as it's known today. But even in light of this, this moment does mark a turning point, a true turning point in the church's history. There will be more schisms to come, some within the Catholic Church itself, some between East and West again. But this moment of subtle yet definitive violence towards the other will be followed up and well-remembered by folks living in Constantinople just two generations later, when Frankish knights will come barreling through town toward the Holy Land. Though these sentiments will still be very fresh, these knights will rip the scabs off a festering wound within Christianity that will continue to sour for centuries more. In time, we will see this continuing drama of the division within Christianity play out. But let today serve as a basis, a crash course, if you will, setting up things to come. Hope you enjoyed today's episode about the causes of the Great Schism of 1054. Please continue to subscribe and share the podcast on your favorite podcasting service or app. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can contact the show with questions, concerns, topics, uh, suggestions, and even corrections. As, again, I'm humble enough to know that there will be unintentional errors along the way that I'd like to correct. And you can reach me at fortuneswheelpodcast at gmail.com. Also, I encourage you to become a Patreon supporter for just a couple bucks a month. You will receive perks such as bonus episodes and shoutouts on the show, to name a couple. My goal for this podcast is to be 100% ad-free and self-sustaining by the end of this year. And I appreciate everyone who is helping to make this possible. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and please keep sharing the show. On the next episode, let's head back north to check out what a major player in future episodes of the podcast is doing as he continues to battle outside forces, including his own king, to maintain dominance within his duchy. The 1050s are going to be rough. You know, you can tell a lot about a person by looking at how they choose to spend their time, and I want to thank you for spending your time learning about our shared history here on Fortune's Wheel Podcast. Until next time.